Welcome back to the Playoff Pod, episode numero cinco, Allen Robinson, Bears Pro Bowl receiver. As always, myself, Jordan Schultz, and Allen, we got a lot to discuss. I would be remiss if I did not mention your Los Angeles Clippers. I gave you a ton of shit for picking them, and also <laughs> I picked them in six against the Jazz, so I'm going to let you enjoy this moment. The Clippers were a tough matchup for the Jazz all around, even even with Kawhi getting injured. Um, the athleticism that they could have and how uncomfortable that they could make Gobert, um, I think that was a big thing that Ty Lue did. You know, um, big props to, to, to Ty Lue making some pretty big adjustments from games one and two to games three. I mean, personally, I think the Clippers should have actually won this in five. They gave away game one. But I think that Ty Lue, man, he put a lot of pressure on Gobert down the stretch to be able to not only – finish on the offensive end, but to be able to defend on the perimeter as well. You know, I think that caused the Jazz very much havoc. But, I mean, that's what I expected, though. You know, again, I don't want to toot my own horn or anything. You know, I think I think, well, I think, from the get-go, I said that the Clippers would keep the Jazz. No, but it's impressive because I was all over Utah, and I have to admit I was wrong. But the opportunity for the Jazz, they were up 26 in game six on the road. And no Kawhi Leonard. And considering the circumstances, and this is where it's hard. If I'm a Jazz fan, it's really frustrating. Because considering the circumstances of, okay, no Kawhi, uh, LeBron, I'm sorry, um, well, the Lakers and LeBron were knocked out. You have the East is a mess. Philly's gone. Brooklyn obviously is out. They didn't have their two stars, really, other than other than Kevin. It's just like, the, it's been a very strange playoffs. And this was, if there was ever going to be a year, for a team like Utah to break through, it felt like it was this year. And I know they didn't have Mike Conley. Uh, Donovan wasn't 100%. But this was the opportunity I, I really thought for the Jazz to break through, and they didn't. So I guess the question is, as an athlete, when you have – when you see the promised land right there and it feels realistic, and then you underachieve or give up a big lead and you end up bowing out before everyone picked, what does it feel like? Man, it's a, it's a, it's not a good feeling. I can tell you that. And I know for the Jazz right now, what's even a worse feeling for that is the actual scenario that you're speaking of. I thought spoke to them as well last season. You know, going mm -hmm. to the bubble with it being a different year, them playing well, having probably the most chemistry out of many of those teams in the bubbles. Um, the Clippers hadn't played much basketball together. Uh, the Lakers were where the Lakers were at. But, you know, the Jazz also had an opportunity last year to do the same thing. So seeing this back-to-back -back year for the Jazz, them blowing a 3-1 lead last year against Denver, now a 2-0 lead against the Clippers this year, you know, it's extremely tough. You know, when you go back and kind of dissect that for the Utah Jazz, it's where did they go from here? Because, again, I mean, these yeah. are two, I believe, what, uh, last year was a first-round exit. This year was a second-round exit. So this is a, a very much underachieving for a team that we thought could possibly be a finals contending team. So, I mean, it's it's a it's a not a great feeling because even as a player, you don't know what direction do you need to go in. You know, are there coaching adjustments that should have been made? Is it personnel things that should have been made? What exactly is it? Well, you hit on a lot there that matters. Number one, Quinn Snyder. Now. Quinn Snyder is a good NBA coach. Maybe he's a great NBA coach. And he got a lot of opportunities, or I should say love, in the coach of the year process. Um, he was mentioned all year. He got votes. I thought he was in that mix. So for him, and this is where as an NBA fan, just as a basketball fan, 
I get frustrated because I thought he was thoroughly outcoached. And number one, the Clippers made Rudy Gobert obsolete in this series. And I know Rudy's a defensive player of the year, but they did two things really, really well. Defensively, they forced him to really come out on the perimeter and guard their wings. So he was very uncomfortable in that position. Then offensively, when they were guarding him, what they do offensively, they just said, we don't care about you, Rudy. We know you're not a threat other than lobs. So they really shut down that dunk spot. They moved him out. They pushed him out a little bit. And then they said, if Rudy's going to catch the ball on the block, go ahead. We don't need a double. So he became irrelevant on both sides. Usually with Rudy, you give up a lot of that offense because you know he's going to rebound and he's going to get putbacks. And then defensively, he's so special. But when he becomes obsolete on both ends of the court, it's really hard for me to think, okay, why did Quinn Snyder not pull the trigger and take them out? Because the lineup that worked for them or that at least gave them a real shot, in my opinion, Alan, was Conley, or if he's not healthy, fine, Clarkson at the point, Mitchell, Bogdanovich, Favors, and O'Neal. That's the lineup. And they he just refused to go to it. So I, I guess, you know, if I'm a Jazz fan, I'm probably even more upset with Quinn than I am with Gobert. Yeah, um, again, I mean, You've also said some pretty, pretty potent things to as far as why the Jazz lost. Because again, I think from a coaching standpoint, I, I think Snyder went with what not only was he most comfortable with, but what he had most experience with lineup wise. I think a lot of coaches, and, and we'll kind of get into some other matchups and some other coaching things. I think in the playoffs, if you don't have ex- have enough experience throughout the course of the season with different end of the game lineups and end of the game things, you kind of go with what you know, which was going with Gobert. You know, I didn't think he wanted to take him off the floor along uh, also with Kawhi being healthy, especially him out because you don't have that, you don't have that guy get into the basket as well as Kawhi does. So I do think that there definitely could have been some adjustments once Kawhi went out for sure. Also, I think right now, I know Utah is kind of more of a traditionally built team when it comes to one through five, if you will. But I do think that they need another, I don't even want to say another score, but another slasher. I think Donovan Mitchell is the only one who can kind of create some type of movement to make the defense rotate. Other than that, you have spot-up shooters and guys who can't really create great shots themselves or get to the basket. You know, you have a couple guys, but for the most part, that was something that I saw throughout the course of the series with Utah. When they were winning, I mean, when they were hitting threes, they were all world. When they started missing, it was getting bad. Yeah, they they looked slow. I thought um, Clarkson had that spurt where he scored, it was like 18 straight in game six and he was mag- magnetic but other than that they contained him they need a another athletic wing a big wing you know you know i'm not going to say they need paul george because everyone needs paul george but they need a wing that's creative and that can get downhill and when donovan wasn't healthy and mike wasn't available then they really struggled and i thought the onus on mitchell to create plays and that's where you see some of those mitchell turnovers too uh and those mitchell four shots he got um Mitchell got hit hard in the media taking bad shots turning the ball over he he has to make those plays and take those chances because if he doesn't try to attack that split nobody else is going to create a play downhill and the defense won't have to rotate 
So he has to do those things. And I think it was really hard for him. Forget the fact that he was 100%, but it's got to be very frustrating because it'd be like if you're a receiver, Alan, and you the defense knows they don't have to worry about the other side of the field. So they're just going to put two on two guys on you or shade toward you the whole game. It's frustrating. And then you do things that sure. are out of – so that, that, that for me was, was very evident. Um, but let's move on to the East because Trey Young continues to do what Trey Young does. Now, I'm going to take credit for this because – I did say, Alan, that Hawks would beat the Sixers in six. I was wrong. But I'm I'm fired up as a basketball fan to have some new blood. We have it in, in the West with Phoenix, to, with Eclipse to a degree, and obviously in the East with Atlanta. What do you like about the Hawks team as they go into game one with the Bucs? Well, I like the confidence that they're playing with. Obviously, yeah. even Trey struggled a little bit in game seven, but he came, he came around late. You know, not just hitting some clutch shots down the stretch, but also being able to make some key assists, finding some guys being mm-hmm. able to get baskets when they needed. I think that it was pretty obvious that Atlanta was by far the more offensive, cohesive team. However, I think that the Bucks are a terrible matchup for Atlanta. Hawks. I totally I agree. I totally I agree. It, Come on. Man, it, it tugs at everything that Atlanta doesn't do well. Like, mm-hmm. it's tough. I mean, having – Having to defend Giannis, you don't really have any big wings. I'm not going to say big wings. I mean, you have Collins, who's a forward, but obviously you don't want him to get in foul trouble or anything like that. I mean, who's going to guard Middleton? And on the flip side of that, they have Drew Holiday for Trey Young. You know, they also have some other pieces. So it makes it extremely tough, especially with um, Hunter being out as well. That's the key. I mean, I don't think that they'll be getting him back. Um, so it's, 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 it's going to be tough. That's the point, Alan, about DeAndre Hunter, because he was the one guy from a physicality standpoint that could at least make Giannis really work. And, you know, I love Capella, but he, his role is going to be on Lopez. You know, you don't want Capella out on the perimeter with Giannis because it's going to be a tough matchup. And then you start to deal with fouls. So not having Hunter is just enormous. I love Hunter. Um, he's been even better than I thought he would be. He makes threes. He also can play make a little bit, but defensively that big six ten physical presence, not having him for Giannis is, is a massive issue. And then the other point about what you were saying, just, just Milwaukee's size, they have big wings. Um, Middleton six, eight, uh, holidays, a big physical six, four guard. And I know that Trey dealt with Simmons holiday is going to get in him and under him and really make him work. And I think Trey's going to get his. But it's just another layer to the Bucks, And this is why having Holiday and not Bledsoe is so important. Because then on the other end, even though he didn't play well offensively against the Nets, Holiday is going to make shots. And he'll give you he'll, – he'll, he'll make Trey and that defense work a little harder. So I, I think Milwaukee's going to win the series. I've been all over Atlanta. I love Herter, Gallo, uh, Capella. Um, I think Solomon Hill will have to play some minutes in this series. But as a whole, I totally agree. I guess I would say – what would what would the Hawks have to do to push the Bucks? I mean, obviously make threes, but what else can they do to really make it a series? Defense is one of those things where you're either a defensive team or you're not. I don't think that you can – there's not too much for them schematically that they can put together because it's – you have Giannis, you have Middleton, you have Holiday, you have all these guys who are bigger physical wings who can get to the basket, who can really tug on the strings of your – the lack of defense that you do have each and every possession. And then on the flip side, they're, um, again, almost 
perfectly matched up for Atlanta. You have PJ you can throw on a John Collins. You have Holiday who you can throw on a Trey Young, you know, and then you have the other wings as well that you can put on different guys. So it's a tough matchup. I think Atlanta will have to shoot the ball uh, extremely well and also kind of create some confidence going forward. I think the emotional, the emotional toll that the Sixers series t- take or took on the Hawks. Uh, I wonder how that'll play out in games one, especially two, because they didn't have a lot of rest. Milwaukee didn't either, but Atlanta doesn't have a lot of rest. They got to go on the road. It's still a very young team. And I, I do think there are, there is a sense of, okay, we're playing with house money and the Bucks are in their third year with this regime. But now I do sense too, that now that the Bucks have advanced and they're in the Eastern conference finals, there's a little bit of, let's take a deep breath. We made it. We got to this point. Now we were, we can not relax, but we don't have to be so uptight. You know, I mean, Brooklyn was a massive hurdle for them, not just because they're a really good team, but psychologically to get over the hump and get to the Eastern conference finals again, I think it's a big deal for Giannis. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they, and I hate to say this because I love Atlanta, but I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they blew them out in game one, I think that would, that would be my take for game one. Yeah. And, and I agree, you know, especially with Giannis, I think he's a guy who, when he gets, uh, I'm not going to say smaller matchups, but, but when he gets more advantageous matchups, you see him be aggressive a little early on. Um, oh, yeah. More likely than not. So I think that Giannis is going to seek blood in game one as far as getting to the basket. Phoenix is – how would I describe Phoenix? Phoenix is, is probably the most exciting team to watch. I love watching them play. I think they play so well together. Uh, for them to come out in game one without Chris – and we should note he's not available tonight for game two. I'm not sure when this will air. But for them to do that and for Devin to have a 40-point triple-double, the poise, the poise, Allen, of a team that is so young, one of the youngest teams in the rosters in the league, to be that fucking good against a very good team. I mean, it's incredible. I think that somebody said it best um, in the post-game interview. They said that Chris Paul always rubs off on them. You know, and that's something that we kind of spoke to a little bit ago to whereas if Chris Paul isn't even there next year or in the future, how and what imprint does he leave on that team? And I think by him not being there game one, I think you see the impact of those guys locking in, speaking to the fact of, you know, things that Chris may have told them from the playoffs, from experiences that they can take with them. So again, um, it's, it's really good to see that you have a young team in the NBA really maturing before our eyes coming into their own with some of the young stars that we thought could be, you know, with Booker, with Aiton, with Bridges, you know, seeing Cam, even even Cameron Payne, you know, seeing him play well down the stretch and create mismatches on the offensive and defensive end. So it's been exciting, man. Again, um, I think that they probably win this series in six pending Kawhi is out for the entire series. If, 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 if the claw is back, you may get a different answer from me. But right now, I think that um, the Suns will win this uh, pretty pretty handily. I, I do like the way that Paul George is playing and the way that Ty Lue is coaching yeah. and kind of how, how how he has those guys rolling. Because, I mean, they competed in game one. They hit shots down the stretch, you know. So um, I'm just hoping that it's a pretty uh, entertaining and exciting series. But I think the Suns will pull it off if Kawhi's not able to make a return. Um, so – the ascendance of book. I mean, listen, I've been saying this for years. It's, it's not like a, 
oh, great call, because we knew how good Book was. But we really see it now. In game one, he scores 43. Uh, he's, I'm sorry. In game one, he scores or assists for 43 of the Suns' final 50 points. He was incredibly efficient. We heard that term a lot, Alan, three-level scorer. Book is a three-level scorer. And I've talked about this a lot. When he gets in pick and roll, he, he's never in a rush. And I almost he's almost like a, um, a bigger version of Chris in that sense because he really takes his time. And, and if the defense is going to take away something, then he'll go another way. He has all these counters, and that's a matter of talent, uh, basketball acumen, being in the gym. Uh, he's just – he's so good in the pick and roll. He's improved a lot this season. I think his playmaking is still underrated, but you saw it in game one where he just says, okay, if you're going to double me, I'm either going to find a guy in the corner, maybe it's Bridges, maybe Aiton's cutting, but I'm not going to turn the ball over. I'm taking my time. And he just makes the right basketball plays. And I can't overstate how important that is. When you have a young superstar who's 24 and his first playoffs, Alan, who consistently is making the right plays, even if he's not shooting the ball well, he's going to make the right basketball play. And that, that is so massive when you're trying to build a winning culture. I agree. And, you know, again, contrary to what we saw with the Jazz, I think the three-level scoring aspect really pokes its head out when you see Book not having to get all the way to the basket. You know, we kind of talked a little bit after the pot um, last time about the difference between Donovan Mitchell having to get all the way to the rim. He doesn't have to get all the way to the basket. He can't get to the basket. He can shoot a mid-range jumper. He can shoot a three. He can assist. The three-level scoring threat that Devin Booker possesses puts a ton of pressure on, on defense. Yeah, and also, as he navigates a game and feels it out, the rhythm you get, and I did a show with Cole Anthony the other day. I was talking about this on, on Game Day Hoops. The rhythm you get from the mid-range. I know it's only worth two, and it's not a three or a layup, but if you're seeing the ball go in, and you're taking 14, 15, 16-footers, one, two, three dribble pull-ups, these are great shots to build rhythm in a game. And then you can extend it. Then the defense has to be even more worried. It just gives you a lot of options. And I, I am excited to see the mid-range, uh, as, or as my guy CJ says, the midi back in. Because it feels like it's, I don't know if, it, if, it's, if it's back, but the mid-range has definitely been a, uh, a notable element to the playoffs. And I looked it up. The, the amount of attempts, the mid-range attempts, are, are up in these playoffs, which is cool. So I, I do like to – I do want to point that out. A little up for the mid-range. Well, I, I will say this. You know, I think from having prior basketball experience, the mid-range is a little bit of a tougher shot because typically for some guys who are getting three-point attempts, it's typically spotting up. But to be able to shoot a mid-range off the dribble is not an easy task at all. No. I mean, the only guys that we've really been able to see kind of be very good at that are some of the best players in our league, some of the elite of the elite. You know, most guys don't have that in their package, but we look at a Chris Paul, we look at a Booker, it puts so much pressure on the defense because you take a big off of a switch in the pick and roll. That big yeah. can't just sag once you get inside the three. You know, right. you put pressure on him now to have to step up because you may shoot that mid-range jump shot and you're very efficient at it. And I think, again, that's what you start to see if you get a switch with Zubac or you get a switch with some of the other guys, they can't kind of play that low paint to just try to defend the against you coverage. going to the basket and shooting a floater or eating a later. They can't play that drop coverage. They have to now step up, but now opens the passing lanes off of the pick and roll even more. And again, with with, with Chris Paul and, and, and Devin Booker being able to really hit that shot, 
they're they're going to put a ton of pressure on the Clippers this series, and I think that they advance to the finals. And whoever they play in the finals, I think they'll do the same. Yeah, I think uh, in game one, Booker made he made seven mid-range jumpers. The Clippers, as a team, Allen made three. So I mean, that's fourteen points, but it's more than that because how many other looks is that going to generate? And also, great point by you. So now the the big can't drop. He's got to play the mid-range because they're afraid of it. But then that leads to fouls. That leads to guys getting in jail. And that's when Book gets to the line. So the thing about Book, too, is his ability to float. He's so creative that he doesn't always have to be at the rim. Or, you know, we, we talk about below the rim, at the rim, above the rim. He, Book can do that, but he's so comfortable letting the game come to him. And I always said that about Ray Allen, just the ability to effortlessly score. And, Allen, I know that you see a lot of that, too, especially – in the playoffs and crunch time possessions when you really need a bucket and the defense is clued in on exactly what you want to do. Now, how do I change up my philosophy in this split second? What decision do I need to make? What counter? That's what book does. To kind of pick see the differences and where it helps a lot of that is down the stretching games because he doesn't, again, from, and I, and I don't like comparing players, but, He's not hitting the floor as much as Donovan Mitchell. He's not having to exert as much energy trying to get all the way to the basket. He's able to stay comfortable, shoot these pull-up jump shots, conserve some energy because that's his game. He doesn't have to get all the way to the rim. And I think that's significant for guys because, again, you take all the times where guys are hitting the floor or doing this or getting, getting, getting hard fouls and stuff like that. But being able to stay in rhythm, I think that's what makes Devin Booker be able to be so lethal down the stretches because he doesn't have that – demanding fatigue on his body in games and even late in series. Okay, AR, the last thing for me today is, and this is the elephant in the room, and it's a big elephant, is the Sixers, my man, specifically Ben Simmons. Now, I know that we have both, uh, how do I say, Uh, we have both been critical of Ben, and I never want to shit on players when it's not rightfully deserved, and I don't want to pile on. But we know as sports fans, basketball fans, that something is not right there. What did you see as an athlete that makes you believe that either this is fixable or it's not between Ben Simmons specifically and the Sixers? Going into this season, I was against and opposed to them trading Simmons. I don't think it's fixable in Philly. And I don't think it's necessarily Ben Simmons himself. I just Mm -hmm. think based on what I saw when – you have MB and you have other guys around him. If you, if Ben Simmons is going to be your defensive anchor and you have to take him off the floor because he it doesn't want to shoot free throws, because he's not confident shooting free throws, not only does he become, become an offensive liability when he's on the court, but once you take him off, now your best defensive player is not in the game as well. So down the stretch, what do you really get from Ben Simmons? And – I know because they're on, because they play with uh, MB, that is tough because both of them want to get to the paint and things like that. Is you have to get somebody who can space the floor a little bit better. I don't, I don't, I don't see Philly getting any better. Um, I was looking at free agency. Maybe they could get a Dennis Schroeder who can kind of come in and 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 uh, run the point and move Ben Simmons. But at this point, I, I don't know how he helps that team from an offensive standpoint because their offense looked awful down the stretch of games. It was really bad. And with Ben, kind of similar to Gobert, right? Like 
we know defensively he's going to be elite. But now all of a sudden, he's not elite. Now they're almost using his, in Simmons's case, his length against him, his size. They're going to put him in all these drag screens. They're going to make him really, really work. They're going to get, get him in foul trouble. They're going to, exp- I mean, he picked up four quick fouls in game seven. And then defensively, they're not really going to worry about Ben. They're going to go under screens. Um, if you want to put him in the corner, no problem. We'll box him out. We're not going to allow him to get tippins. It, it's, it's hard to watch someone that talented with that much ability and that much size. I mean, you guys, 6'10", to not even be a factor, Allen. I'm talking about offensively. I know that he's not the perfect player, but they don't even – they either take him out. Doc didn't late in the game in game seven. He, did, he has earlier in the series. So if they don't take him out, they just bury him in the corner. And he's like, it's like, he's not even there. It's really difficult to watch because you know, it's got to be killing him as a competitor, knowing that he's not being used. And then also he's got to be questioning himself of I'm supposed to be the franchise here, a top 15, top 20 player. And I'm not even in the game. I don't think that it's really even a lack of skill. I think the biggest thing is the lack of aggression. You know, maybe putting his head down, getting to the basket, you know, doing those things that you would want to see somebody do, even if their jumper isn't falling. But to not take a field goal attempt late in the game, in the fourth quarter, I forget how many field goal attempts he had, he had in the four, entire was, series in the fourth four quarter. Shots. Four shots in the game. Two or four. And that's where the lack – that that's – the unexcusable part of it is I wouldn't be mad even if he went to the free throw line 20 times and missed 20 free throws. But it's the fact that you're going to the basket, guys are picking up fouls, you have some flow to the game. But just not taking shots and not doing anything, you're literally almost like you're not out there. No way that you can win with that. No way. That you, it would be like you not being able to call pass plays or you not being able to throw the ball deep. Or if a team realizes and say, okay, like, they can't throw the ball like not that they won't throw the ball deep, but they can't throw the ball deep. You know, the coverage would actually change, you know, or if you can't run the ball on outside zone or something like that, you know, so it really handicaps you. And uh, again, I, I don't see I don't see how Philly gets over this. I don't I don't see how this changes, because, again, yeah. we know that playoff basketball is the most critical time of the season. Well, great stuff there. I, I agree. And one thing that we haven't addressed that's worth noting is MB went back to back eight turnover games in game six and seven. Now he, he didn't play great. And I know that uh, Philly fans have criticized him, but the issue is that they're asking Joel Embiid to be like a primary wing offensively. I mean, they're actually asking him to do a lot of the things Giannis does catch the ball at the top of the key, take three dribbles, get to the rim, make a play. That's not Embiid. I mean, he can do that sometimes, he can make threes, obviously, but Joel Embiid's value is that he has this immense skill set on the block to eat up, carve out space. You can throw him the ball in the block, but to ask him to create from the perimeter is, is crazy. But that's, that speaks to Doc not trusting Tobias, not trusting Ben. Um, it's just a, it's unfortunate because you, you, on paper, this team should be great. And they're just not, they, they don't fit specifically Simmons and Embiid. They don't, they don't fit together. And now the issue, Alan is what's the trade value for Ben Simmons. You know, I saw people saying, Oh, CJ McCollum. I mean, there's no way you're getting CJ McCollum for Joel or for Ben Simmons. No, 
Maybe you can get a couple first round picks. I don't know, but but the trade value has been significantly significantly diminished. I mean, I've asked around the league, like, what can you get for Ben Simmons? And you know, there's plenty of teams that would want to have him, but they're not going to give up anywhere near what you want. So you're going to have to sell him for I don't want to say pennies on the dollar, maybe 35, 40 cents on the dollar. And and again, and I think a big part of that is depending on the team and depending on the market. You know, I mean, you're kind of starting to fall into that him taking up a possible max spot if you have a guy. I mean, like let's say you, you're looking at a Miami or a New York or somewhere like that. It's like these teams want these slots to be able to go sign a max player. So it's like, I mean, do we take a chance on trading for a guy who just signed a contract, you know, and us maybe not being able to get off that contract and also hindering ourselves in free agency, or do we not? You know, that's also what comes a, a big factor in if a team will even make a move for it, even if they didn't have to give up that much. I wonder, um, too, you know, Philly fans always seem to blame Brett Brown. Now Doc is the scapegoat along with Ben. Um, how much of this is on Doc? And you- I was <laughs> I was really on Doc last year after the Clippers uh, blew that lead. But this year, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I I give him a little bit. Um, just have the same effect that by this being the first year, you really don't expect your when you're stepping into a situation like this, and you think that you have two superstars in your team, you don't expect for your main superstar to not score a basket in the fourth quarter for four straight games. I mean, that's that that's that's a little absurd. You know, now you're asking, like you said before, you're asking NBA to do so much. You're trying to really. Um, figure out how can you adjust and what the issue is, and especially when this is your best, one of your best defenders. So I don't think so. You know, I think maybe give Doc another offseason to be able to kind of assess the situation, yeah. you know, see if they can put some pieces around those guys and stuff like that. But this is a, this is not a good situation though. Well, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, I just like uh, Utah and Philly, both those teams we felt have more in the tank. I wonder uh, which team, which team are you more prompt to say, Let's blow it up. Probably Philly. I would say Philly. I mean, because at the end of the day, it's you have a true one true cornerstone piece now on that team, which is uh, MB. Um, everybody else, you want to try to figure out how can you put the necessary pieces around MB. You know, that may be another guard, that may be um, uh, another ball handler. You know, uh, some more shooters. You know, so I think it. I think it's for sure Philly. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, Seth, Seth has another year. He'll be back. Danny Green's got, I think, another year. You got, um, you know, Shake. Uh, they, you know, they obviously picked Tobias over, over Jimmy. And I like Tobias, but you know, they they need they need more creativity. And you know, it's it's not going to be from Ben. So, I really, I, I just, I think, again, in asking around the league, like, what can you get for Ben Simmons? It's not. It's not nothing, but it's a lot less than it used to be. And you're going to have to trade him for 30, 40 cents on the dollar. And are you, are you willing to do that, Daryl Morey, if you're, if you're the Sixers? Or do you want to just keep running it back? And I, I don't foresee a situation where if you're running this team, if you're Daryl Morey, where you can say, you know what? We just got to fix Ben. It's not that easy, man. I just I don't think it's going to happen. I, I think don't. you're going to see a new Sixers team next year, a new point guard. And uh, – I wonder, I wonder some good ones on the market. I'm definitely excited to talk about some possible moves that teams can make headed into the offseason. Well, me too, bro. I think, I think that's a perfect spot to close up shop. Um, AR, it's been a pleasure. Enjoy the 
Western and Eastern Conference Finals. Appreciate it, my guy. So, I know it's going to be tough seeing your Clips bow out, but, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe Kawhi comes back. That I want to see everybody at full strength. So, I hope, I hope Kawhi and Chris come back. Um, in the meantime, everyone, enjoy the game. Stay safe. And uh, we'll see you next week right here on the Playoff Pod with Alan Robinson and myself, Jordan Schultz.